0: Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. And speaking of advertisers, I had fun last week with Warby Parker. And thank you for your input. Some of you on Twitter weighing in on which of the five styles of sunglasses, since I don't really have much fashion sense myself, I should go with. I did end up going with two of them. That's how much I liked The prospect of this, really, I just had fun with the whole experience. So I'm going A and D for those keeping score at home, and I realize it's a very small percentage. I hope of my listenership, but if you are keeping score at home, it was A and D, and thank you very much for your input. Uh, It'll be a better summer for me. Got to keep our eyes protected, especially some of those those of us with fairer complexions and maybe lighter colored eyes. Those are particularly vulnerable to the rays of the sun god Ra. So, uh, thank you. So, this is our mailbag episode, and I need to start with an apology, because last week I led you to believe, and I do apologize if if you feel misled, that this would not be this episode. I thought last week we would be reviewing my stock picks, five stocks I picked from a year ago, five winners in a thinking world. And at the end of last week's podcast, I talked about how I was rubbing my hands together, excited to share with you those results and reflections on those stocks this week. And yet, I forgot, completely forgot. This is what happens when we have a very small staff. I completely forgot that it's mailbag week, which is always maybe arguably the most fun we have each month anyway. So, yeah, it's mailbag week. And I want to say one or two things about our mailbag before we start with the first of our nine or 10 items this week. And what I want to say about mailbag is advice for mailbag. So, let me just give you our viewpoint, our side of it. Rick Engdahl, my very talented, multi talented producer, takes in your questions from email and Twitter each month, and this time, copying and pasting them into the Google Doc that we use to keep up with your questions, it came to a 21-page Google Doc. So, a couple thoughts on this. First of all, I said to Rick, Hey, this is a great problem to have. In fact, I hope it's a much worse problem a year from now. I want it to be a forty-page document, but we're going to need to kind of figure out how best to to filter that. I'm open, by the way, to any suggestions. If you want to email us or tweet us out, how to how best to do that. But I want to say a couple of things about how to write a question that will get presented on mailbag. Uh, Of course, we love your stories, and we love every question, and thank you. Um, But this goes back to my radio days, back when my brother Tom and I did The Motley Fool Radio Show on AM Radio, later NPR. We took in questions every week, a lot of interchange back and forth with our listeners, just like we have on this show. And we learned a few things In terms of how to drive ratings, we weren't really driving ratings for our show. It wasn't really a goal of our show. But how to select good questions that people want to hear, especially NPR is good at this. If you're a fan of something like Car Talk, if you've been a fan of that show in the past, you'll recognize that they do a pretty good job selecting it may sound like a live call in show, but they're really selecting the best callers or most interesting questions that people leave on their tape machine over the course of the previous week before each show. And so, what we learned about that was this there are two factors that really lead me to want to share this one, not that one, on our mailbag. The first is ask yourself what is the most interesting question to the most people? There's a little bit of utilitarianism is it Jeremy Bentham going back to my undergrad econ days but there's there's a utilitarianism to this ask yourself what will be the most benefit to the most people so for example questions that I tend not to select would be hey what do you think of this stock you know my stock or classic for old radio show days for us would be somebody asking about their personal financial situation they want to ask technical questions about their IRA or something like that that I would call ratings death. So of course every question counts, and if you're asking it's because you you wonder about it. But if you think about the format for a podcast, what's going to be most interesting or helpful? Um, you, you want to go with questions that have me saying something that's interesting to a lot of people. Or, a second factor, if you think I have something unique that I can speak to, that I enjoy talking about, then that's going to be something as well. So, anybody who just wants to pander to me by asking a board game question, you're almost always going to be guaranteed mailbag positioning. Those of you who have gotten to know me over time know I love to talk about games as one example. So Those are a couple factors that Rick and I use to select what goes into mailbag every week. And I should mention, while I will now be featuring a minority of the questions that I get every week, every question, as I've said repeatedly at the start of the show, is important. And There are places to ask those questions. If you're a Motley Fool member, right there on our discussion boards, a lot of people wonder about that same stock that you're wondering about, or about A similar financial situation. They might be your same age or at the same brokerage firm and they have a question. You might be able to help them or vice versa with those questions. So, especially, I think our discussion boards for members, we do have free discussion boards for people who are not members yet of the Motley Fool, not paying subscribers. You can avail yourself of those as well. So, I think there are a lot of great things. Ask yourself, what is the best place for the question that I have? All right. With that said, mailbag item number one. This one comes from Josh Gervin. Josh says, Hi, David! I've been enjoying the show for a few months now, all the way from New Zealand! I'm relatively new to investing and have so far been reluctant to make the jump from index funds into individual stocks. In previous shows, you've encouraged new investors to try and reach a portfolio of 20 stocks as soon as possible. And This got me thinking about the concept of diversification versus concentration. By investing in individual stocks, you're deliberately focusing on those few companies that represent your best hopes for the future. As you diversify, Josh goes on, you become less focused on these companies. You trend towards average returns. Not always a bad place to be, he adds. Is there a particular rationale behind recommending 20 stocks. Is 20 to 25 considered the optimum number at which you're nicely diversified but remain different enough to stand out from the crowd, etc.? cetera. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. Yours foolishly, Josh Gervin. Ah, Josh, the classic question. What is the right number of stocks? And it is a universal question. In fact, I'm even happier this is coming from New Zealand, because it shows that it's on all of our minds, whether we are where we are, or at the antipodes, which, by the way, is a ten-cent word. So, with this antipodal question, I'm going to go back to how I think about investing very briefly, and that is that I think, first of all, there is no magic number. So, if I did say 20, maybe you heard me say that at one point on this podcast, uh, I could easily have said 15 or 55. In fact, I've mentioned in the past that I have about, I think, I have about 53 or 54 stocks. If you're a Motley Fool member, you can see. My stocks by looking at my profile, you can see that for any Motley Fool employee, you're not going to see our allocations or anything like that. We are after all private people, but we do disclose the tickers in our portfolios regardless of weighting. So, you know, I have about 50 or so. So, I think the right way to think about this is how much money do you have and how much interest do you have? So, if you have lots of both, lots of money and lots of interest, for me anyway, I think it makes sense to go with a larger number of stocks. And you might think 50 sounds a lot that I have. We have members with hundreds of stocks. And there are certainly books. There's a book my brother loves about Shelby Davis, the famous investor who basically just kept buying stocks his entire life and left. With uh, making this up because I haven't actually read The Davis Dynasty, which is one of my brother's favorite books. I'm going to recommend it though because I trust my brother and he loves this book. So I'm making it up, but it's like Davis died with a thousand stocks and he destroyed the market over the course of his life and was an extremely rich man. So I don't believe that you need to run a focused portfolio or a very large portfolio. It's partly a factor of how much money you have. Obviously, if you're investing your first hundred dollars, I'm going to suggest you go with one stock. And I want you to save $100 more and get a second, and go like that. And if you are much older than I am, with a lot more money than I have, I could easily see you with 100 or more stocks." I think part of your question, Josh, in closing, is it's about the performance that we can expect. You're asking, partly, if I have too many stocks, am I going to just start looking like an index fund myself and just get the market's average returns? So, I think, numerically, we can all see how that might be the case. Just pure math here, for every additional plus one you add to your sample size, your sample is more likely to look like the mean average of the overall performance. So I think that that's true. At the same time, we buy these stocks at different points over time. Usually, we're making a lot of money on stocks that we've held for the longest time. For example, when Netflix went up for Stock Advisor members about 5% the day that I'm taping, for a lot of us, that's a stock that we've held for a long time and it spiffy popped. In fact, it it I think a spiffy 3 popped for Motley Fool stock advisor with just a 5% move. And so, a single stock can drive a huge amount of your returns if you hold these companies over time. So, I wouldn't get hung up on the notion that there is a magic number of stocks that you should have and above that number you're just going to be merely average. What I would stay focused on in closing is your own energy and your time. because That's the other factor I mentioned, your interest. For me, I'm a kid in a candy store. I probably could get by with just 25 stocks, but I love the stock market. I love learning and following these companies. I see a new rule breaker, I want to add it to my portfolio. You might be like that. If you are, you're going to have more stocks than the average Fool. Um, On the other hand, if you don't have that much time or interest, uh, you might well just want to keep the number down so you don't have to spend your whole life tracking these. Hope that helps, Josh. There's no way I can ever give a definitive final answer to this. It's going to be asked three mailbags from now and eight mailbags from now, because it's a great classic question. And I think we could probably do a better job answering that at The Motley Fool. In fact, I was having a discussion about your very question today with our Chief Investment Officer, Andy Andy Cross, and we asked, you know, how good is Stock Advisor at helping people figure out how to build a portfolio? Some of our services are much more focused there, like Supernova. Um, but I hope that we offer some perspective and materials, whether you're joining Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers or a longtime Motley Fool One member. I do think it's helpful to figure out how to build your portfolio, but there is no one size fits all. Great question. Mailbag item number 2. Hi, David! I have a question about keeping a large cash balance in one's retirement accounts. I'm 36 years old. I have a bit of time before I can even think of retiring. I know that the market over long-term has gone up since I have a long time horizon until these funds will be tapped. I feel I should have the money in my IRAs and 401 k fully invested at all times, taking advantage of all upward market movement. I've read that some people recommend having a portion of your portfolio in cash, maybe 10% with the thought of holding that money until a, quote, market pullback. I'm having a difficult time choosing between these options. What's your opinion on the matter?" Signed, JC. Love the show. Thank you for all the great information. Well, thank you, JC. This is a quicker one to answer for me. Yes, JC, I think you should be fully invested. Um, Studies will show that the best way to maximize your returns over time Unless you have some weird, crazy ability to time the market, which I do think would be weird and crazy, the best way to do it is to keep yourself fully invested at all times. And the reason that that's true is because two years out of every three, the stock market goes up. Not not one and a half years out of every three. Not, God forsake it, not one year out of every three. Historically, two years out of every three, and most of us aren't good at predicting which of those years are going to be up and which one will be down. And So, because the market trends up over time, and if you need a visual proof of that, just look at the graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or the S&P 500, or NASDAQ, over any period longer than about 20 years, I'd suggest take a look at the 100-year graph, you're going to see it looks like it goes up. It goes lower left to the upper right, what every consultant likes when they look at graphs or create charts or frameworks, lower left. To upper right, yes. If you zoom in on any two or three-year period, or sometimes a six or seven-year period, you can have some negative returns. But for the most part, that's rare. And over the course of your life, and that's what we're talking about right now. You're 36. Congratulations! You have 14 years more investing than I'll have at this point, and I'll never catch you on that count. So you got a lot, a lot of time ahead. I think you should be fully invested. Mailbag item number three. This one comes from D G. Dear David, I heard about your podcast from a friend. I've endeavored to catch up to speed, listening to a few early episodes, getting my foolish feet on the ground, as it were. You inspired me to begin investing. Thank you for that. Unfortunately, with the performance of the market down 20% the past three months, i found myself well underwater with the money I've invested so far. I'm beginning to ask if I should be doing this at all. It doesn't feel good at all. Week after week, sometimes day after day, watching companies that I believe in see their prices go down, 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 and my money with them. It all just seems like a big mistake. Any words of encouragement for a failing novice who trusted you guys to get me started right?" Signed, signed. nobody at all. I said, from DG. That would be my own initials. I wrote this one because I think it's really important to follow up my previous mailbag item. When I said, be fully invested, I want you to know that it's very possible, I would have said this a year ago on this podcast or 2 years ago when Rick and I started in the summer of 2015 that the year ahead could be a downer. And it's going to happen, it happens one year in every 3, and I really don't want to receive a note like the one that I just made up. Because I really want you to be looking beyond the one year or don't worry about companies that you believe in going down 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 week after week over a short term period. Yes, that is going to happen. It hasn't happened in a while. In some ways, we're really all living a charmed life right now, and I'm not trying to predict a market drop. I'm really not, because I don't even think that way. In fact, part of the reason I think we're all doing so well is because we don't try to head fake our way out of the market and get back in later. If you're an investor, if you've been with me since the start of this podcast, or maybe the start of Motley Fool Stock Advisor, you are a very happy person today. That doesn't mean you should feel like you're about to get hit by a car with your portfolio. Not at all. I think the market tends to go up over time. Welcome! This is how how it rolls on the ship of fools. But part of being on the ship of fools is that sometimes, in fact, about once in every three times, we hit some bad waters. And So I really want to make sure when I tell JC in my previous mailbag item that you should get fully invested, if JC, you agree with me, or Josh from New Zealand earlier saying you're having a hard time getting from index funds into stocks, if you finally make that move, and then you find the market drops and it feels disconcerting for a solid few months, maybe even as much as a year, that doesn't mean, while it's natural to be sad or question yourself, it does not mean that it was a bad decision for you to get into stocks. It was just unlucky timing. And the best way to take unlucky timing out of the equation altogether is to make timing not even count by simply becoming a lifelong investor. So I've talked about in the past, the word investor, by definition, for me, means long-term. The only tweak I might make to that is, to me, being an investor, by definition, should mean being a lifelong investor. I know The Motley Fool has turned many of you onto that idea already, and you've been practicing that. And you maybe didn't even need The Fool to do that, because you've invested for more than the 24 years that The Motley Fool has been around, and you've always known that. Good for you. A lot of people don't, and a lot of people, it's kind of an eye-opener for them to hear, you know, I should be a lifelong investor. Well, no longer for you, whoever you are. Mailbag item number four. This one comes from John Holzlander. John, I enjoyed this. Thank you for sharing. This is one of those that may not be broadly relevant to everybody, along those two dynamics I spoke to earlier. This is the one about of particular interest to the podcast host himself. By the way, I know I'm speaking to some people who themselves podcast. So if you get mailbag, I hope those few thoughts for you are helpful when you think about what you want to feature on your show. So this is in that second category of stuff that I just love talking about. And you know it, John you provided me some fodder with this fun mailbag item. So good day, John writes, listening to your March mailbag and your love of misattributed quotes. I will give you two of my favorites. Now before I go on and read these, which are both great quotes, I want to make sure it's it's known. I don't have the time or interest to fact check. So in this particular case, John, I'm taking you at your word on this one and I know if for some reason you have it wrong, which I don't think you do, some other helpful fool will drop me a mailbag and say, hey, Admiral Yamamoto actually did say that. But, no, John's saying this is not the case. So, here we go. The first quote that John mentions is this one, "...I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and filled him with terrible resolve." Attributed to Admiral Yamamoto. John writes, this is a movie line from Tora, 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 and is supposedly what Admiral Yamamoto said as the Japanese fleet celebrated the attack on Pearl Harbor. Thing is, there is no credible citation still. Sounds good. And before I read John's second one, I do want to mention that part of the beauty of these misattributed quotes is that they are just great quotes. So, what's funny about them is that they get attributed to famous people and then often put on bumper stickers or become somebody's big TED Talk slide. And you and I can giggle a little bit, not cynically, because you know, we're not here to rain on other people's praise, but it is helpful to make sure we know the truth when the truth can out. And the internet is awfully good for this, for rooting out what the actual sources of things are. I realize there's a lot of worries about fake news, but ultimately, I think the internet is the best proof against Fake news. So John goes on with this one, which he says is often attributed to conservative pundits, most notably the Scottish Lord Titler or Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, Of course, they didn't say it either. John says, still, it sounds good, and here it is. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. Great nations rise and fall. The people go from bondage to spiritual truth to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back again to bondage." John, thanks for that. You concluded by saying, and my mini financial hack, you're probably remembering that we have our our mental tips and tricks and life hack episodes from time to time, so you gave your own. As a college student, you wrote, I paid for a lot of stuff with cash. I would take the change, throw it in a tin, and at the end of the school year, roll the coins and use the money for a day at the amusement park. I do the same thing now as an adult, John writes, with a seven-year-old. Only at the end of the year, I take the money and put it into my son's 529 plan. Good fooling. That's how he closed it. I say to you, sir, good fooling. And I'm also going to fit a quick Scott Phillips tweet in here, because he's got a misattributed quote to share as well. He says this is usually misattributed to Einstein, but it is, he says, brilliant. Anyway, here it is, quote, Everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Which, by the way, puts me in mind of a book that I picked up Bought on Amazon a few weeks ago. It's called "Play Anything." It was pointed out to me by my friend Chris Hill of Motley Fool Podcast Fame and Ian Bogost, the author, tells the story of the now deceased novelist David Foster Wallace giving an address at Kenyon College, and the title of his address was "This Is Water," and it comes from this introductory parable. Again, I found this in my reading. It connects right with Scott Phillips's quote about Einstein fish. In particular, this is water, in which an older fish exchanges a pleasantry with two young ones, asking, how's the water? The older fish swims on. One of the younger fish responds to his compatriot, what the hell is water? The point of the story, writes Wallace, quote, is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about, end quote. So. Hope you enjoyed that. Mailbag item number 5. This is from Jason Dechtebrunn. Jason writes, Wonderful show! I can't thank you enough for sharing your invaluable wisdom with aspiring investors like myself. I'll get right to it. You have repeatedly expounded on the fact that you prefer to add to your winners rather than your losers. But when precisely do you choose to invest more in a winning stock? Do you wait for dips? Do you wait for evidence of continued strong price appreciation? Do you wait for a certain duration of time to have elapsed? I would imagine there's more thought and logic that goes into this decision than meets the eye. I can't myself recall hearing you elaborate on that point in any of the previous episodes, so I, maybe some other fellow fools as well, would find it valuable to hear more about how you approach this sincerely, Jason Dechterbrunn. Thank you, Jason. You're right. I don't think I think it's one of those mantras and one of those kind of Mantras, We usually they become mantras, we repeat them in our heads, we say them to others, and they just become a truism. They become who we are and how we are who we are. But I don't think that I have really expounded on how to do that. I've probably talked more about the why than the how. And once we get into the how, you're going to find there is no particular science that I have. We have a longtime member who's now a staffer, Danny Vena, a friend of mine who probably is listening to this right now, and he developed his own approach to adding to winners. I'm going to slightly butcher what Danny does, and he should feel free to um, to write in about this next month. But it emerged as a series of discussion board postings that I followed over the years. and I thought it was, at first, kind of crazy in a really interesting way. He basically would buy an initial allotment of a stock, and then he would specifically wait for that stock to go up 40% in value and he would only ever add to stocks that right then hit that, and if they did, he would add. And then he had another 40% above that. And over the course of time, he would build out positions. Now, you can imagine, sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't work, it goes up 40%, but it was more of a cyclical parabola stock, and then you add it, and then it went back down, and you end up being sad. But, because we're looking at rule breakers, we're trying to find the world beaters, he has a good eye for this. He is now a staffer at The Motley Fool. It works really well when you find a company like Netflix, or Facebook, or Amazon, and the list goes on. You're adding to winners. so That's an example. I'm just throwing that out. It's not my own example, and it's his, and I think he's refined his approach over time. But that's an example of somebody who had a real specific trigger. So that's If you're a systems thinker, or you like to build systems, you like to be very process-driven, you could take that kind of approach. Even though I love systems, and I like to think that I'm somewhat process-driven, I don't have anything like that when I think about adding to winners. I'll say this. For me, it's about the business winning as much as the stock. Yes, when I say add to my winners, it means I'm adding to stocks that are up for me. But the reason that I would add to this one, not that one, if two stocks are both up, I'm going to pick the one where I look at the business and I say, it's doing really well. So, it's much more business-focused than it is stock-focused. And I think, in closing on this one, Jason, I do believe that it works because I do believe the winners generally keep on winning. It's not just true in the stock market, it's true in business, in in my mind it's true in life. So you may agree or disagree, but at least you know kind of how I frame things up and why I tend to do that. And I'm really happy to say the one thing that this approach takes away is that horrific possibility anyway to me that you might buy something, it goes down and you're like I liked it at that price. Now I'm going to buy some more here, and it goes down again. And you're like the market does not understand the stock. I'm adding more, and so the surest way to knock yourself out of investing altogether would be to do the opposite: be adding to a loser and keep throwing, as they say, good money after bad. So I hope that's helpful. And yes, it is kind of baked into what I do, but there's not a lot of specific process there. All right, before we go to mailbag item number six. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans when it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender. and Let's face it, that is a big decision for many of us. It's important to work with someone that you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you're going to get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home, or refinance your existing mortgage you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage skip the bank skip the waiting go completely online at quickenloans.com/fool equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states NMLS nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030 thanks again to rocket mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting all motley fool podcasts again quickenloans.com/fool Okay, I said nine items, so I'm going to be a little bit quick on our last three, because I don't want to be the guy who makes the podcast that was too long. So, number 6. This one comes from William Ross. I know William from the Rule Breaker community. He's a longtime contributor to our discussion boards. Hey, David, this is William. I was wondering if you could go into detail in the podcast about how sell recommendations are made for the Rule Breaker service. I know in the past you've mentioned you prefer not to sell unless something goes obviously wrong with the business. However, I've often felt the scorecard has kept some stocks too long before realizing the initial investment thesis did not pan out." And William goes on to give an example. He said, "...one company in particular which I think exemplifies this is Twitter. When it was first recommended, they were growing and the business appeared strong, but over the years they've disappointed again and again, and the stock is still a recommendation. How many chances are you willing to give a company before you decide it's time to sell?" For myself, he says, if I see two or three disappointing earnings reports in a row, I am usually out. Thanks in advance for your answer. Thank you, William, for your It's Good to hear from you, as always. So, The best way to summarize our sell process in Rule Breakers is the pithy answer of, we don't really sell in Rule Breakers. Now, the truth is, we do, so I can't get away with that glibness. But I was trying to convey with that, that we try not to sell. We try to spend most of our time asking what to buy next. We don't worry about our losers too much, because as you know, because you're very mathematical, William, for a loser, as long as you're not adding to it, it loses numerical relevance in your portfolio as it declines in value relative to the other things that are gaining. And that's always worked pretty well for us. So We try not to sell, but the truth is, as you know, we do sometimes. And you're right, most of the time, it's because we've decided that this company is obviously not working out. This is an obviously bad thesis that we operated off of. And it needs, you heard me repeat that word a few times, it needs to be obvious to us. Now, you gave Twitter as an example. I can't say to me that it's obvious that Twitter has failed. I definitely agree it's been a disappointer for stock market investors. and As a business, it's disappointed fairly repeatedly over the last few years. Higher expectations for the performance. Do we have good management at Twitter?" Those kinds of questions. I totally understand why you might have grown disconsolate or sold the stock. There are, after all, so many other great companies. None of us, I think, should be too focused on any one stock. I think that's a mistake, winner or loser. Uh, So, there is no specific process by which we decide three strikes and you're out. If you're a Rule Breakers member, which I know you are, William, you know we have a penalty box where we'll throw stocks in there, not because of the stock, but usually because the business we have questions about, we can't say we want that one, this is NHL hockey terms here, we don't want that one out on the ice right now skating for our team. We're going to put it in the penalty box because we have other players we can put on the ice. So we use that penalty box. And sometimes that's a way station for future sells. And again, if you're a Rule Breakers member, you probably know this. You can look at our penalty box and see what's there. So, I would say in conclusion on this one, that selling is not a big preoccupation for us. I know it's one of the most frequently asked questions. and A lot of people, once they bought a stock, the first question they have is, what's my target price and where would I sell? But for us, it's a process of just persistent ownership over time, and it's the exceptions, and usually the ones that fail, that we end up selling. The final thing I'll mention is that there's a whole category of sales, both in Stock Advisor, and Rule Breakers, and in Supernova, where the companies got bought out by something else. So, a lot of our sales, we didn't want to make. It's just that that stock got bought out. Mailbag item number 7, this one's from Andy Lehman. Andy, we featured your music in our month-ago mailbag. We enjoyed featuring that. And you were so kind to come back and say, hey, for Motley Fool members, if you like, here's a link. You can have all of my new album for free. So we're gonna tweet that out from the. I'm not great at reading URLs over the air here on a podcast, but from our Motley Fool at RBI podcast Twitter. This week, we will feature that link that Andy's sharing. He goes on to say a little bit more. I want you to know a little bit more about Andy. He says he doesn't depend on income from music for a living since joining Motley Fool Services about three and a half years ago. Andy, you're right, my thought process has been completely upended for the better in the arena of business and investing. The Motley Fool has been instrumental in guiding my thinking during a season of life where I was selling the business I had been running for a decade and still is with the current one. He says, the current one is probably a 19 on the crushability scale. For those who know our risk ratings, you're saying it's a it's a somewhat risky venture, but hopefully that'll change as we continue to grow. So, we're talking to an entrepreneur who just happens to be a talented musician. Andy, thank you very much. Very generous of you. Fool on! Mailbag item number no. 8. This certainly is from one of my favorite Fools, Ahmed Awami, at Ahmed underscore Awami on Twitter. And, Ahmed, it's always a pleasure to hear from you again. We tweeted out this question This was after our How David Beats Goliath podcast last month. We said, as an investor, what are your strengths and weaknesses? How do you play to your strengths? If you remember the point of that episode, please listen to it again, if not, because it's one of my favorite, most important points I can make to you. And in so doing, hide your weaknesses. And Ahmed came back with this this tweet. Love it! Just sharing it here on Mailbag. Most institutional investors are judged on their short-term performance, We individuals don't have to play on that battlefield. And sure enough, I think that is a great example of David beating Goliath. You and I can and should think and act long-term, and we're playing in a field where most of the big-time competitors and the big money moving around is holding stocks for much shorter periods of time, and I don't think nearly as profitably as you and I can. So That's a great example, Ahmed, of where we all as Davids can beat Goliath, because they're playing the game by different rules, and we can take advantage of that, and we do. And I also know that you tweeted out this week, and I appreciate this, too, because it goes under my big, dumb money theme, which I play up on this podcast from time to time, an article from Bloomberg entitled, ETFs create stock markets that are both mindless and too expensive, study says." That's the title. Anybody who wants to read that article can look it up on Bloomberg. But the point here is that the more that the vanguards of the world succeed, and I love Vanguard and what they've done, but the more that people are just mailing it in, it creates a huge amount of what I call big, dumb money. Investment funds that are not discriminating not picking this stock over that one, just buying everything in an industry, not being selective at all and therefore I think and again I think we're demonstrating this every day at the Motley Fool and I hope you too in your portfolio we can take advantage of that by buying the good ones and avoiding the bad ones in a world where Goliath is just kind of buying a little bit of everything these days. So thank you for closing the loop on on that point as well Ahmed. And finally mailbag item number no. 9 this week this one comes from his screen name on The Motley Fool is fool 4 Tribe. I'm going to take that, that you're maybe a Cleveland Indians baseball fan. fool 4 z Tribe. You wrote, Dear David, I was going through some old papers over the weekend. By the way, this is going to be the inspirational story to close this mailbag. I was, I was going through some old papers over the weekend, you wrote, trying to rid myself of excess clutter, and I came across some files that are quite illustrative. Around the turn of the century, That would be this one, so let's call it about 20 years ago. I was acting as trustee for an elderly lady who had fallen victim to Alzheimer's disease and was no longer able to manage her finances. The trust had a portfolio that was easily into seven figures, invested mostly in blue-chip stocks. I remember seeing a couple names that you all would remember. Exxon, for example. These positions were valued at $50,000 or more. I remember saying to myself, How does anyone get to the point where they are able to own that much of a single stock? My own portfolio's value, then, was less than 10% of that of the trust. A few years later, I met The Fool. I started with the venerable Stock Advisor service, but soon after added hidden gems, inside value, and rule breakers. Ultimately, I became a charter member of Motley Fool One. I built a strategy that invested in virtually every recommendation from any Motley Fool service. I chose different allocations for the various services, had to come up with strategies when multiple services recommended a stock, or, horror of Motley horrors, two services disagreed regarding a stock's prospects. Fast forward to today. My current portfolio value is larger than that of the trust's on a nominal basis, and I have a number of positions at or approaching $50,000 in value, all thanks to The Motley Fool. So, thank you." And I want to say, in conclusion, whenever I hear a story like that, and you know I love stories like that, that is why we do what we do. You are why we do what we do here at The Motley Fool. I'm always the first to say, it was really your actions. You're the one who saved the money. You're the one who decided to subscribe to our services or within a service, probably choose these stocks, not those others. I have a lot of losers, so we only deserve a portion, a minority portion of that credit. Every fool, capital F, who joins our services or decides to do his or her own self-directed investing, no matter what country you live in in the world, has taken that responsibility on we are nothing more than the fool. Right? The classic fool whispering words of advice to the king or queen, that's you, and hoping occasionally to point out when the emperor has no clothes. But we are your advice giver. We're your coach. You're the actor. You're the player. Congratulations. That's a great story to end on. Next week, yep, Rule Breaker Investing will be traveling backwards to five winners in a thinking world. I will go over the stocks I picked a year ago next week, see how they're doing, and we'll reflect together on what we can learn from that. In the meantime, enjoy your week. Fool on!